You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is November 13th, um, 2020, and I'm here with Dr. Ariel John. Uh, Ariel, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me do this. Um, Yeah, and so let's just get started, uh, which is, uh, you know, I wanted to begin by uh, you telling us a little bit about how you got interested in economics and why you decided to come to pursue graduate studies at GMU in the first place. Okay, so um, my interest in economics started when I was about 14 years old, and I was uh, um, I was a student in Trinidad and Tobago, and when you are 14, you have to choose about eight subjects that you're gonna take examinations in, in two years. And so with my family, with my dad, I sat down and we were thinking about what track should I be on? Should I be, you know, physical science, social science, languages, and um, you get a choice. And my dad was saying, you know, um, economics is something you really need to understand. I remember him saying that, like, you, I don't want you out there in the world without understanding economics. So I was like, fine, economics is going to be one of the eight subjects. And then, so I started taking it. And I just had a really, like, I think a lot of us are very um, inspirational teacher. And I did well as her student. And um, she was just talking about all these things, you know, poverty, GDP. And I remember me and some of my fellow classmates were like, wow, there are people who know these things. There are people who understand these things. Um, How are they not, you know, how is she not the prime minister? How is she not leading the country? I can't believe somebody knows all of these things. So it just, it just seemed like um, it could unlock some of these mysteries about poverty and how the world works. So when I was 16 and it was time to choose to whittle those eight subjects down to three and specialize. We call them advanced level. Um, I chose economics as one of the three. I'm like, this is, I, I want to do more of this. And so I did, and, and, and I did really well in it. And so um, I was thinking about coming to college and I wanted to come to the United States. And fortunately, um, my dad was able to help me do that. And you know, in, in selecting schools, I was like, there needs to be an economics program because that's what I'm going to do. And um, I'm not sure this is everyone's experience, but the high school I went to was um, super, super competitive. And there was just sort of this expectation that whatever you did, you would do it to the end. You'd become a professional, you'd, you'd get a terminal degree. So I'm like, I am going to be an economist then. <laughs> Um, And I had the same experience in college. I had a fantastic advisor. His name is Dr. Kim. And he just sort of threw every opportunity to do well at me. Um, He gave me research projects. He gave me awards. I spent a lot of time with the the department and the faculty. They, you know, sort of groomed me. And um, so when it came time for me to, to decide to take that on as a career, we sat down and we looked at schools and our process was, the schools to apply to for graduate school. Our process was to look at um, departments and look at the faculty and look at what people were studying and what questions they were asking, what research they were doing with their students and so on. And George Mason had been on my radar because um, I opted to go to a college in Maryland. GMU just had this reputation as being a very strong, prestigious school. So I'm like, okay, hopefully I can get into that. We looked at the program um, and it just seemed like it would be a good fit. And when it came time to decide um, which of the schools that I had gotten into uh, that I would go to, 
um, GMU just seemed like the best fit. Now, coming from you know the West Indies as a young woman, I absolutely know, knew nothing about um, the tradition that I work in now, the economic tradition. There was no way for me to know. So um, getting into that at GMU was really surprising. Virgil sort of took me under his wing. It was really interesting. And, you know, after a while, it just started to make sense. And so I was like, so there was, um, there was something very fortuitous about ending up at George Mason University. You know, I know not, 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 not everyone has that trajectory that I had, but that's how it played out for me. And one of the things I find fascinating, actually, is the story that you tell, not every high school in America, in fact, that's a very unusual experience to have that kind of seriousness of purpose at that young age. Mm -hmm. But I do think that people that end up by becoming professors tend to be aware of things at a certain age, you know? And right. I think it's, it's fascinating that what captured your imagination was puzzles of poverty and then trying to think about that. If you would have been born 10 years later, let's say, you know, it might have been like the students we teach now, the puzzle for them might be uh, the global financial crisis and, and growing income inequality. Right. And that, that gives you a whole different idea than so trying true. to solve the problem of, po of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my own case, it, I was a became aware of things having to do with stagflation, uh, you know, high unemployment, high inflation, uh, you know, issues having to do with a general sense of malaise in the country, you know, at the time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had uh, seemed to uh, just on the heels after Vietnam and everything else, we felt like the the military might was just a charade, you know, and it's falling apart and and there was two, over over administration of life. And so okay. that made sense that you would study economics from that kind of bottom up point of view rather than the other. So anyway, I think that's kind of fascinating to think about that story. Um, early on in your education, you started working on a project, though, mm -hmm. uh, having to do with back at your in, in Trinidad, uh, yeah. which is on ethnicity and self-employment. Yeah. And, uh, and you had very, uh, you know, surprising observations and results. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could, you know, discuss that paper, mm -hmm. the, the biggest surprise you discovered in it, and the biggest challenges you had in sort of pursuing that general line of inquiry, because early on, it, it starts to show this thread in your work about the influence of cultural influences on entrepreneurship. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that dissertation project, um, it definitely evolved, you know, at the beginning, I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go. And now, you know, Virgil and I have published all three chapters. So yeah, it, it definitely evolved. But um, just like you said, the environment here in influences what kind of, you know, what you see when you look out the window and what questions that you ask. And, um, you know, in Trinidad, you have um, different ethnic groups. You have Trinidadians who are black, you have Trinidadians who are Indian, Trinidadians who are white with Middle Eastern heritage and so on. And you kind of, um, you know that they sort of live life kind of the same, kind of a little differently. And you definitely know from you know, a very young age that their economic performance seems to be very different, but nobody, um, talks about that. That's not in the high school curriculum. Like it's just sort of in the background given and um, issues of ethnicity and race come up in your interactions, personal interactions and all the time. So it, it weighs on people's minds, but there isn't like a discussion about it. And so I guess it just, okay, so, so I'm going to be able to write a dissertation. I have that privilege to do that. I can do whatever I want. I'm free to like ask, you know, these questions and go look for answers. And so I'm like, it's, it's, it's going to be about that. It's going to be about Trinidad and Tobago that I care a lot about. It's going to be about, about ethnicity, which seems to be like this booming question in the background. 
And it's going to be about entrepreneurship um, because, you know, I came to understand this, the significance and the relationship between entrepreneurial opportunities and economic performance, which is what we care about. And also, um, it's kind of what my dad did. My dad is, is, is a businessman. And it's, it was all, always interesting to see his relationships and dealings. And so I knew that if I was going to do this project, I was kind of coming at it with, with some background, some context about all of these, all of the judgment that's involved, all the interpretation that's involved. Um, and so when I first started poking around doing those initial set of interviews, Virgil and I talked about, you know, what, what I was looking for. And I, uh, I was like, I want to understand people's just general attitudes towards work and business. Let me just sort of start there. How do people feel about the things that they do? Um, why, they, why do they choose, you know, the different jobs that they choose? Let's just sort of start there. And it was really um, a discovery process. I could not have uh, predicted that these answers would have come forth in the interviews, but most people um, were like, yes, this is what I do for a job. I make shoes or I work, you know, at Pizza Hut, but I really, I have this business idea that I really want to work on. And it started emerging as a theme. And when I came back from Trinidad that summer and Virgil and I were discussing what I found and I told him, and he was like, that's really interesting. And I was like, really, is it? Yeah. Um, he's like, yes, that that's interesting. It's unusual. Not everybody's going to say that. And so there's something there. And so then it started to film up in my mind, okay, do the people around you growing up um, instill that desire in you? Um, do they provide you with resources? How exactly do the different groups of people approach entrepreneurship? Um, and so, so the dissertation ended up having three chapters, one on culture, one that was basically just empirical because I had to show that yes, the different ethnic groups do actually have very different entrepreneurship rates and patterns. But that last chapter was supremely challenging. And that, that was the, the theory, right? And the, the, the explanation. And the reason why that was challenging was because I, I had to understand the history of these various groups in Trinidad. And that, that was the knowledge that I had least access to and that I was least comfortable with in terms of just having intuitions about it. So I really had to go um, searching for that. I ended up using um, quite a bit of secondary sources and um, trying to fit that to theories of entrepreneurship and culture that I had developed earlier in that theoretical chapter. And so that's what I did. Um, but, you know, though those papers are published, I, I, you know, I would like to see that project keep going because I'm still conflicted about some of the answers that I found in terms of, so for example, um, I found that you know, the, the Trinidadians who have Middle Eastern, white, European heritage, so on, they have super high rates of entrepreneurship. The black Trinidadians like myself have the um, lowest rates of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I talk about influences um, like uh, slavery and how that led people, and Virgil talks about the same thing in his book, how that led people um, to develop a certain attitude and approach towards their entrepreneurial decisions. The Indo trainees came um, as indentured laborers. They had to reinvent their identity upon arriving in Trinidad and that influenced how they approach entrepreneurship. But I think the fact that I used secondary sources means I was never like quite satisfied um, with my answers and so to the extent that I can, you know, go back and sift through archives and return to that some of that material, you know, if I want this project to evolve, I think I would return and do some of that. So that was the biggest challenge, really nailing down and feeling comfortable that I had nailed down the historical details. Yeah, maybe we can recruit a young, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the next generation of <laughs> students like yourself that will then work on the project. 
I don't know if you know this. I imagine Virgil must have told you this, but after Don Lavoy finished his two books, Rivalry and Central Planning and National Economic Planning, what is left, he was going to do an economic history of the development of Trinidad because Mary, his wife, is, is, Trinidad, is from Trinidad. Yeah. And so Don started doing that. And I was his research assistant at the time. So I started to you know, help collect everything. But I was mainly collecting for him development economics literature as opposed to Trinidad, you know, ideas. But I recently, you know, obviously I, I said that I had your uh, monograph with Virgil, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that I gave to that everyone read. I also gave it to the different visitors, you know, that have been coming into the class like Granovetter and, and, and others. And um, but it's also the case that I, I started reading, you know, again, your papers on these topics. Hmm. And I mean, I think it's just a, a, an amazingly rich area of research to hmm. go into, especially at the borderland, it's going to sound weird because I always thought of it as the borderland between economic development and culture. Okay. And so an economic development and political economy and cultural economy kind of questions. Right. But when I was reading it this time, I started thinking, you know, students that want to go into the field of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. they could actually really leverage your work that you're doing and focus on that angle because I tend to think of entrepreneurship as a mechanism for development, but yeah. it's also just a, it's just a phenomena in and of itself that right. has these influence. So I wanted to ask you to, I mean, you hinted a little bit at it. And so I, I don't think we have to go into it much, but basically the puzzle in Trinidad was that you have uh, these ethnicity groups mm -hmm. and the dominant ethnicity group is not the dominant entrepreneurial group. Right. And so that's where the puzzle mm. comes in. Yeah. That's yeah, right. and, but you've gone further and examined the questions of entrepreneurship and characteristics of successful entrepreneurs. And that is both cultural, psychological, whatever, you know, and I guess I wanted to, you know, ask you to drill down a little bit into that and also discuss the methodological and analytical issues that you confront and dealing with that. I, I like, what's it like? working with any kind of surveys to try to get at that kind of idea, structured interviews, how does that work? How do you process that kind of stuff? Because maybe some segment of the, of the students in this economic sociology field are gonna wanna do that kind of field work. And right. you know, so how do you help them along in that way? Oh, that's a tricky and tough question. Um, uh, first, I, I want to mention that um, Virgil's book, Enterprising Slaves and Master Pirates, really deeply influenced how I understood entrepreneurship. Because you mentioned, you know, the, the different ethnic groups in Trinidad have disparate um, right. entrepreneurship performance. And, but, but that's not the same as saying some groups are entrepreneurial and some are not. And right. Virgil's in book, different ways. Yeah, yes, yeah. in different, right. Virgil's book really helps me understand that, you know, because, you know, if you look at the Bahamas and you compare it to the rest of the world, you might say, okay, well, they're not very entrepreneurial. But he says, no, no, um, in this expansive and deep notion of entrepreneurship that I hold, I, I sort of know where to look for entrepreneurial behavior yeah. now. And it's in, it's in the little things, right? It's in um, trying to braid hair on the beach or trying to sell you know, your wares and, and bringing things to market. And lots of different people are doing that and they're doing it in different ways. And for a whole variety of reasons, you know, as you said, political, so on, they're going to have, and, and in their interactions with each other, they're going to have different performance, but his book really helped me understand entrepreneurial behavior is happening. Um, you just have to get down there and look for it because the, the high level statistics don't tell the whole story. Um, and so it's, it's in the getting down to it and looking for it that I think comes out this, yeah. this idea of, so what, what makes a successful entrepreneur? What's the characteristic of entrepreneur? And Virgil and I have, have published on this. 
And it starts with that notion. And this is what helps you understand it's happening all the time, even among groups that you would think it's not happening. It starts with this notion of aloofness, which we all know about, right? Mm -hmm. People in various situations, um, in the traditional market, in the post-disaster setting, within firms, right? People are paying attention um, to opportunities to just sort of improve how things are happening, um, to get things to the people that need them, to, to make social change on a very small level or a very big level. And so this concept of aloofness is at the forefront of the entrepreneurial mind. Right. And so this, this was this was really different for me because going in, I was like, oh, an entrepreneur, somebody's like my dad who right. runs a company. And that's what entrepreneurship is. And it starts a lot before that. Right. Because um, no one really no one necessarily tells you what to do. Right. Um, so the the entrepreneur now has to use their judgment and their interpretation of the environment. And so that's why I think entrepreneurship and markets look very different from group to group and society to society, society to society, because what people are going to notice is sort of just gonna depend on what they're primed to notice, what they really value. Um, and so to understand the entrepreneurial decisions people make, you kind of have to get into their heads, try to see through their eyes and look at, okay, what might this person think of as a, as a proper opportunity to earn profits? What are opportunities they might never think to look at because um, nowhere in their history or their culture has that um, lens been turned on to look at that certain thing. Um, so I think that's, I think we generally understand how culture influences people's entrepreneurial lens and what opportunities they see and they don't see. But now, as you said, the problem is, um, how do you study this in a way that you know satisfies your curiosity, satisfies the discipline? And to me, there's 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 really no way, but as I said, to get down there and to talk to the people that not only have attempted it or have successful entrepreneurial ventures going, but people who are just thinking about it, which is which is what I covered in my paper. They're all over the place. You have people identifying opportunities you have a lootness everywhere have they taken that step yet and become that schumpeterian entrepreneur and actually brought it to market not necessarily um so you know it, it's it's challenging obviously to do to do that type of field work because and i remember when i was discussing my dissertation in our graduate student paper workshop back then um one of the one piece of pushback I got was, but people can say anything, right? People are just telling you, when you go interview people, they can say whatever they want. They haven't come up against those incentives that really determine their behavior. Um, they, their product hasn't been tested. People can talk about being anything. That doesn't mean that's what they're going to do. But I think um, from what I understand about culture is no people won't just say anything there are specific scripts that sort of people have ingrained with them yeah. and as i said that lens is turned on or off to different things and so it is interesting it is unique and it is important what people are saying because they could have said something else yeah no, um, in, sorry no no go ahead Finish. yeah in terms of um now going down getting on the ground and talking to people um, I think, so it, it wasn't that challenging for me to, to approach my subjects because, you know, we were front, we share history, we share language and so on. And I actually started within my dad's um, business network and like expanded from there. So when you have a, when you have like a point of entry into the subject pool that you want to talk to, um, I think that really helps. And then from there, you just sort of ask, well, who else is available? Who else can I um, get in contact with, contact with? So I think that networking issue of trying to figure out who your subjects are will be important. I have not yet 
um, conducted interviews with people that I don't sort of share that cultural background with. But I imagine for any of you know, our fellow students who are interested in doing research completely out of their comfort zone, um, they're gonna come up against that challenge. You know, how, do, how, do you, how does the conversation evolve um, naturally and spontaneously when you don't necessarily have a fully shared context um, is I think a question um, that people are gonna grapple with, but Emily Chamley Wright does write about this and talk about how it can actually be, you know, can actually be a benefit that you are coming at a question or coming at these interviews with this outsider perspective and with this quote unquote um, objectivity. But, you know, I think in, in so much as our students are interested in studying the other, they're gonna have to think about questions of approaching people very different from them and how to elicit um, really deep, um, true responses from their interview subjects. I think this is a really fascinating subject actually from a methodological point of view. Okay. And my next question is actually gonna to relate to this, but let me just elaborate a little bit here is that okay. one of the things that always struck me with Doug North is that after Doug North won the Nobel Prize, of course, he was invited to go everywhere in the world yeah. and comment. He also is a historian who cares about institutions. Right. And, and, you know, so he's, he's both cares about history, cares about institutions. But I've heard him on more than one occasion say the following thing. I will not give advice to a country unless I spend six months reading about its history and, you know, its language. And I remember thinking that a anthropologist or a historian that would hear that would be, what arrogance do economists have that they could master everything about a culture and a history in six months, you know, on the side. Right. On the other hand, uh, Dan Rose, in a book called Living the Radical Ethnographic Life, he tells us that the typical uh, student in anthropology that wants to go study, let's say, the Balinesian you know, uh, like life or whatever, or Trinidad life or whatever, unless they're you, meaning a native born person, right? Uh, their language capabilities are the functional equivalent of a 12 year old. <laughs> Even if they spent all of the, their time and effort in learning a language, if it's the truly the other. And so his argument was, is that you don't really rely on 12 year olds to dictate, you know, your understanding of your society or whatever. Right. Um, and so the only thing that can bridge in some sense is some kind of universal aid or crutch. And we call that economics. Mm -hmm. So we fill in these gaps in, under, in giving space to the scripts. We make the script become a coherent narrative because right. we sift it through economics. Yes. And so this is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about, because to me, I mean, there's been different times during our relationship where we've talked about things where you are very hard-nosed economists at times. Like, yeah. as, you know, <laughs> for example, when you were teaching at Beloit, I can remember talking to you about intermediate microeconomics, you know, basically like, Demand curve slope downward. We live in a world of scarcity. Like we have to have this argument. And on the other hand, you're talking about scripts, meanings, all these other kind of things which you're adjudicating. So in your mind, how do you balance social explanations between economic incentives, political economy factors, and cultural considerations? And do you shift the balance depending on the question that you're asking? Or do you have a way that you think yourself about how you negotiate those balances? Pete, wow. Um, okay, but yeah, you ask very difficult questions. And the truth is, um, it's a tricky thing to do. And I don't think any of us who work in this cultural tradition have fully mastered it. But um, in terms of, you know, balancing the, the pure logic of choice against these, you know, cultural factors that influence choice. Um, 
um, one thing that I try to keep in the back of my mind is um, a part of Virgil's book, Enterprising Slave and Master Pirates, where he says, and I, th I think this is true, and you can tell me if you agree, he says that when we are telling these, you know, purely incentive stories, so for example, um, the, the ethnic group X can perform better at entrepreneurship because they have more resources, right? right? right. Or the politicians voted in favor of policy. Why? Because they receive money from a lobby, right? And so, you know, just kind of purely incentive-based stories. What, what Virgil has to say about that is, even when we're telling those kinds of stories, we have pre-assumed, we have pre-assumed to know what people value yeah. and what people care about. We haven't done any of the work proving and establishing that they do value that and why they, we just sort of pre-assume it. And a lot of times it's completely safe to do that because we share a cultural context with the people we're writing about. So we might do exactly what they did. And then the person reading our, our, um, our work also might see, oh yeah, I can see that if, you know, if I were in that situation, I would have taken that money or I would have used my resources to become an entrepreneur. But so, so what Virgil is saying is that the cultural story is implicit yeah. in a lot of, you know, these straight economic or political stories. Um, but we need to make them explicit. I think for at least two reasons, because one, we could be wrong, right? right? We could be wrong about what's really motivating those people um, to act and what they've actually done. And two, because I think we want to tell, as social scientists, we want to tell the richest story about a social process that we possibly can. So can we say, you know, I know in economics, we want to be um, very neat um, and very brief, but there is value in bringing richer understanding to a process. And so to the extent we can say, well, um, this group used those resources in this way because of all these historical, sociological, cultural factors, I think we benefit more from just assuming we knew we know why they used the resources in that way or why they responded to the incentive that they did. Yeah. So that's always in the back of my mind. I, you know, we, we're, on the surface, we're telling a simplistic story about incentives, but we can't presume that everybody would have reacted that way to the incentive. And so why did this group respond that way to the incentive? Well, now we have some real work to do um, instead of making that assumption. Um, and so doing that work, I think is, is very difficult and it requires understanding quite a lot about the groups that we're talking about, whether it's, you know, DC politicians or um, potential entrepreneurs in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, no, that's a great answer, by the way, Ariel. I think that your challenge to those of us who want to stand, understand the other is crucial uh, to that. Um, I, I, you know, before North made the comment about the six months or after the six months, he also used to say, don't tell me that people respond rationally to incentives unless you tell me how they, uh, what they, what those incentives or signals mean to them. Right. Like how do they interpret the, the meaning of the signals because yeah. and that will be the appropriate. And I think that's what you're getting at. That's what I'm trying to also was, was uh, thinking when you were just talking about how this underlying cultural considerations that we treat as given too often mm -hmm. is similar kind of line of argument that McCloskey gives about the way we economists uh, argue in general. So the problem is we think that we argue uh, just uh, based on, you know, pure science. But what we do is we use all kinds of rhetorical tricks that we treat in the background of the way that we tell the story that we tell so that it's persuasive to other people. And what McCloskey was trying to get us to do was bring that rhetoric explicitly up front so we can understand the difference between helpful rhetoric, let's say, and, and sneaky rhetoric or whatever. And I think a similar kind of thing is what you and Virgil are trying to do is get us to think about these cultural ideas and, and scripts that people have 
and how they impact their imagination. And because that impacts their imagination, that's going to affect their means and structure and all of these other kinds of things, which, you know, then gets played out in the logic of choice and the situational logic of interaction. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's something bigger there that you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, when I, you know, I was just reading this morning a paper um, on, uh, on rugged individualism, and it's in the, the deep roots literature in economic development. So, you know, it's basically going to admit like a cultural kind of idea, have a deep root, and then try to, to, to make an argument for path dependency and the persistence of the deep mm -hmm. roots, mm -hmm. and have that explain like different variation and different outcomes. And it's very, you know, it's very standard neoclassical way in which they try to go about trying to incorporate culture, okay. which is different from the way that, that you guys do it. But there is a kind of an intellectual horse race going on. And I was just, this is one of the reasons why I was thinking about the issue, not only in development economics, but also in entrepreneurship studies, that, you know, the kind of work that you did can serve as a catalyst for people in all these areas to sort of jump into a conversation that is going on, but offer an alternative by giving priority to the factor that doesn't get talked enough about, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the thing that is assumed yeah. to either be there or to, but is not analyzed in some sense. Yeah, you know, Pete, you make a really great point about um, the, the language that we use and you know, we obviously think we're being crystal clear and that we've completely captured a phenomenon in using yeah. words like, you know, like alert and entrepreneurship. But when we um, on ASP interact with the fellows from other schools, so like the Lavoie fellows, the, the Bastard yeah. and Smith fellows, then we get really challenged, right? Yeah. And it, it happened very recently, recently when we were discussing um, community revival in the wake of this disaster, Stephanie Lauren Virgil's book. Yeah. They were like, what, you know, why are you calling this entrepreneurship? What do you mean this kind of behavior is entrepreneurship? I never saw entrepreneurship as, as that way. And I remember a student asking, um, how did she put it? What's what's the payoff that you're getting from calling um, it yeah. yes, characterizing this as entrepreneurship. So, you know, they're they are obviously some of them are not econ students and so they have this sort of objectivity now and they they question just our basic and fundamental terms and it's a reminder that yes there is there is some stuff built into the jargon and the terminology that we have sort of boxed ourselves into and we have to make the case um, to these students why we think these frameworks illuminate more than they you know obscure we have to make that case. Yeah, in this paper that I'm reading, it actually juxtaposed, it's not written by one of one of our group or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's an NBER paper. And uh, the argument in the paper is that rugged individualism makes collective action uh, less likely to happen. Okay. And the reason is because rugged individualism undermines uh, civic duty, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, part of the community revival stuff mm -hmm. is that there's no conflict between individualism and community revival, right. and that we see that in terms of the social entrepreneurship that people engage in that, you know, and, and, and but other people don't see that. So this guy yeah. sees this divorce. We see a, a blending. How yeah. do we then, you know, communicate with them a way to, to see this link? And I agree with you that one of the best things that we're doing uh, mm -hmm. is working with the students at, in our Smith program, our Bastiat program, our Morgan Stern, our, now our Lavoie program, to make us better scholars and teachers so that we can do a better job with our PhD and MA fellows, right? So it's, right. it's all things are symbiotic to one another, not parasitic. They're, they're very symbiotic relationships because to me, like the learning and learning how to listen. Yeah. When I first started, when I first started Smith, uh -huh. you won't, you won't, um, uh, you, you know, this will not come as a surprise <laughs> to you. Okay. It, uh, I thought it was an, an extra opportunity for me to lecture. 
Okay. Right. Yeah, so, right. so, so, you know, I'm going to tell everyone like uh, how they should think of this as a united research program and they should all get on board and all be working on this. And I used to have to keep notes to myself and, I, and I'm sure that they're floating around somewhere. And I would put in giant letters, listen, listen, right? Yeah. And, and, and other things is less is more. So, you know, like, don't yeah. jump up because, you know, the way the program's set up, and I, I want to talk to you about this, so I don't want to take too much, <laughs> of that, but the way the program's set up is like for in the Smith, they have in many ways the most alien readings at the very beginning because they get the, the first exposure is to get thrown into the Austrian school. Oh, yeah. and, then, and most of these kids are not economists. They're political scientists or historians or, or anthropologists, even or yeah. whatever. So yeah. the most familiar stuff is actually the Ostroms to them. Yes. And yes. that's what we get to last. And then we do, you know, Buchanan and Tulloch in the middle. So you got Mises and Hayek, then you get Buchanan and Tulloch and that. So that first weekend, you know, they're like completely like, what is going on here with some of this stuff? And I had to, I had to understand that I wasn't there to impart my wisdom. I was there to engage in mutual learning with them. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, I had to learn mm -hmm. and listen to what they were saying. And so I had to come to appreciate a point that you just made, which is that it's that none of us are mastering this because it's maybe not masterable. <laughs> And, and that's like one of the most important things to learn about lifelong learning, which is that not fully mastering just means that you have an opportunity to continue to learn. And right. so we embrace learning and continual learning in this process. And in order to do that, you don't have to just hear other people. You really, really have to listen to them. Yes. And if I'm trying to talk about development economics, yeah. I have to listen to what people that are engaged in development economic studies are saying, right. what they think are the problems, what yeah. scripts are they listening to, and what art narrative arc. And, and so I'm now all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, okay. And this, of course, becomes very uh, complicated issue when we get to the summer program and we're reading Mill. And, and these different people on race, gender, income inequality and stuff. Cause you know, what it meant to, to talk about race, gender and income inequality in you know, uh, 1880 is a lot different than what it means today. And how do you process that and stuff? So right. um, I'm gonna come back to that in a second because of your varied experiences. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I think that, that your work mm -hmm. by putting that so much in the forefront you think about background and foreground by putting so much of the emphasis in the foreground about the meaning structures that individuals have that the eyeglasses through which they see the opportunities in front of them or how they understand it and giving that a priority in our narrative is so crucial to understanding the very puzzles that you started with which is that we all care about the social problems poverty squalor ignorance right disease right yep. <laughs> and, yep. and so we care about that that's what motivates us to want to study these things yep. and see about the eradication of these social ills that's our normative thing we want to have maximize human flourishing while minimizing human suffering and 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 but we can't do that as authorities from afar that can impose it on somebody because we have no idea about the tyranny of our expertise on them, right? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. All right, so you have a new book coming out <laughs> uh, with Deanna Thomas on entrepreneurship and market process. And so, right. you know, tell us a little bit about that, that project and what was behind it and, and, you know, what we can expect to learn in that. Okay, so, um... You know, we, we started talking about our external fellowships, Smith, Bastiat, Morgenstern, Lavoie. And, you know, we, we're, we're all in the Hayek program for, you know, philosophy, politics, and economics. And so one of the best ways for us to reach out 
and, and drawing people from these other disciplines, you know, we have this treasure trove in our fellows right. because they, they study everything, right? And so one of the great things about the alumni program is that it has this opportunity for us to pick a, a broad theme that we really care about, a broad research area and say, okay, um, we have fellows from a variety of disciplines. How many of them are interested in, the, in these themes? And would they be interested in, you know, thinking through their questions and publishing through this, this alumni program? And so Virgil and I um, gave space in that program to commission an edited volume on entrepreneurship and the market process. And we reached out very broadly and we got students from, Deanna and I got students from a variety of disciplines to write about entrepreneurship. And so we have um, some of our PhD alumni, some of our Smith alumni in that volume. And they are, so we asked them, you know, make this personal, make this about your own research, but um, we want you to sort of think about and engage with entrepreneurship as you know, the people at Mercatus, as the Austrians understand um, entrepreneurship, as it relates to a question of alertness, as it relates to questions of processes. And so we came up with this um, series of chapters that I think are pretty wonderful. Um, some of them question the very foundations of microeconomic theory, understanding of entrepreneurship. Um, the first chapter, for example, you know, we, we talk about marginal revenue and marginal cost and, you know, that profit point. And in that chapter, um, the, the alumni, they discuss that, um, how do I put it? that decisions aren't necessarily made at that uh, pinpoint. Yeah, yeah. And that entrepreneurs are dealing more with holes, holes with a W than yeah. they are with marginals. Yeah. And in another paper, um, the concept of the ethnic entrepreneur is taken to, um, is taken to its fullest potential. And that's by, um, Stefan Kowasi, he basically took Virgil's work on, on the Bahamas and my work on Trinidad. And he decided, okay, if we had to, if we had to make a model of what this Kersnerian ethnic entrepreneur is, because we want to take it and we want to apply it to various um, scenarios and communities and cultures, what are the important aspects that, that lend itself to a model of this Kersnerian ethnic entrepreneur? So that now people reading this chapter who are interested in this um, interaction between ethnicity and entrepreneurship can take that model and apply it to various environments where ethnicity seems to be important. And I thought that that was a really cool application um, because Virgil and I delve deep into entrepreneurship in our communities but there was definitely scope to talk about, um, to bring out like a model for which people could take now and apply to different situations. And there's work in there on um, regulation yeah. and there are chapters on, let me see, um, looking at more non-market arenas for entrepreneurship. And this is one of the things I think we do really well in. Um, and I think that really impresses our external fellows that entrepreneurship is not just this um, feature that applies to traditional market scenarios, but it applies to those social scenarios and disaster scenarios. So really um, the book brings in, it again, it deals with standard microeconomic theory. It cuts against that. It brings in the sociological component, the non-market component, and also more traditional policy areas like um, regulation in mainstream in Main Street versus Wall Street. So I think Deanna and I were able to edit a really good series um, of chapters, and I think that the book truly reflects the goals of the um, of the Hayek program and of the various fellowships in terms of 
um, using these concepts of entrepreneurship that we've developed and expanded on within our tradition, but seeing what these other voices from these other disciplines can do with it. And that's what I think was the basic goal of that project. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that, uh, well, I want to congratulate you on that. I think that's awesome. Thank you. And, uh, I do think that those programs and also the fact that we developed a series which was called Tensions mm -hmm. in these different thinkers. It goes back to the, your point about, uh, you know, that I, the, the entry point into lifelong learning, right? If there's not tensions, there's not anomalies, there's not things like that, you know, the world stops becoming interesting, right? mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and so we as scholars, you know, Rosalino has a great paper on the origins of the term imperfect, and the term imperfect yeah. doesn't mean that it's lacking. It actually means it's becoming. So, it, so there's, there's, you're always in a, in, a, in a becoming state rather than a comparison state with a, an ideal versus a non-ideal. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the etymology of the term is imperfect. Oh, right. I remember that. Economics, it's, it's been translated into this like normative benchmark thing, right? We have a perfect perfect competition and then we get imperfect competition and we have to do policy to make it be perfect competition right, right? that's the goal mm -hmm. and he challenges that idea and i think that we can apply that also to our own understanding of the evolution of ideas ideas are that we are drawing on in the past are not just trying to get faithful interpretations of the past weber let's say why do we still read weber's because weber still speaks to us today we can learn from him today mm -hmm. and as a result of that we make him part of the extended conversation when you make him part of the extended conversation that means that there's errors and there can be revisions and there can be we're not worried about having a faithful interpretation of weber per se but how we can use weber's ideas to make sense of the world and and, and keep going forward That's so right. i think that that uh, you know your your work on that is. Uh, I hope that some of students, PhD students, either here now or in the future, get excited by this idea of trying to examine the the characteristics of successful and unsuccessful entrepreneurship, whatever that means, uh, to see the variety of ways in which entrepreneurial activity manifests itself right. in society and the role that that cultural scripts play in, in all of that. Um, I'm mindful of your time and, and other obligations. So I just want to ask you another question, which uh, is a long question. So maybe we'll be here for a little longer, but, but it's, it's, it's really has to do with your work. You've had a variety of experiences for someone so young, actually, in your career to be honest with you. Um, I read a book when I was back in grad school. I'm going to get the title wrong, but it's by Mary Catherine Batson, and it's called Constructing a Life. Okay. And it's about how women have such varied experiences, and that makes them more interesting people than men, because men have a very myopic experience, you know? Oh, but let's forget the gender issue. Just talk yeah. about experiences. You've been a professor. You've been an advisor to government. You've been a program, you know, a, a manager. You've been an academic entrepreneur. So designing, developing, managing, participating in various educational ventures. Uh, you know, if you were talking to a young or a newly minted, young aspiring graduate student or a newly minted PhD, you know, what would you tell them about all these different experiences that you've done in the in the ten years? you know, since your yeah. glory days at Hood College. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's an amazing thing, actually. I mean, and, and not only that, like your advising the government wasn't like, you know, it was, you're like a major player. It was, you know? it was I was really up there. It was, it was yeah. weird. It was weird to be really up there in those boardrooms. It was really surreal. Um, but, but thank you for describing it like that, you know, um, it, it can be the, my variety of experiences, my diversity of experiences can be um, viewed positively or negatively. And I think you, you see it positively. And I try to do the same. Um, uh, 
Um, so, wow, what would I say to the to the student? Okay, so for, for my first experience, so my first job was a professor. Now, when I was younger, I did work in my dad's business, but that was like, you know, I'm the boss's daughter. That wasn't real, you know, that wasn't <laughs> real. So to have your first job be a professor was kind of, it was kind of um, challenging because you have to learn, you know, about being a professional and all of these things that you might've learned in a different job before you, you became a professor. So to just be thrust into that was, was really surreal. Um, the students really humbled me. And I think that's when I learned um, the hard way that, you know, getting this PhD in economics doesn't, so I had this idea that, okay, I'm now part of this exclusive club and I'm <laughs> studying this exclusive science. Yeah. And what we do is very exclusive and you need to get on my terms to get into, you know, my club, whatever. And at the end of it, I realized that was completely the wrong approach. And what we want to be as economists is inclusive. And I learned that, you know, as I said, the hard way. And so um, part of doing that, as you said, is just really listening to the students. But more than that, it was listening, listening to the campus community, where, wherever you're at. Um, your campus community is gonna be a unique environment um, based on, you know, the type of school that it is, liberal arts versus research, big university, small, Midwestern versus, you know, coastal, something very unique is going to be going on, going on at your school. They're, it's a community, they're going to be having their own challenges. Um, listen to what the, your other professors are interested in and talking about and how they're trying to create this campus culture and how the students are involved in that. Just really listen. Um, I think I learned a lot in my experience at Beloit, and I believe I was there from um, 2011 to, to 2015 or 2012. I was there for three and a half years, and that school was dealing, um, they were dealing with budget issues, they were dealing with social justice issues. Um, at Beloit, they, they really care about being an inclusive community, about women's issues, um, you know, minority issues. They really care about those things. And I could have spent a lot more time um, listening to, to what, what it is people cared about. And I came out of that experience with a greater understanding, I think, about American politics, American history, American social issues. I was really, really grateful for that. But, um, and, and the students can tell when you're engaged in just what's happening in their community. So I would say do that. I had a student approach me on my first day like of work there. And she was a black female student. And she said, I thought only, you know, white men teach in the economics department and I'm signing up immediately. You know, and I was, I was completely thrown off by that. I'm like, I'm just here to teach economics. I'm not here to be all these other things. <laughs> but um, that again, that's what was important to them in that community. And I had to try to embrace that. And I was super humbled by that experience. So I would say, just be open to what's happening in your department, in the other departments. You can learn a lot from the, from the rest of the yeah. um, community. Um, and then I, you know, I've, I've always been extremely connected to my culture and my my family and my island. And so I decided, you know, to go back to that and that's when I entered um, government. And, you know, I was an advisor to a minister and I was on the board of the public utility regulator. And again, sort of found myself in unfamiliar territory. And it was, it was really difficult. It may just have been the positions that I was in. It was really difficult for me to find my feet there. Um, I think one of the lessons I learned was, um, this ideal policy space that we um, theorize about, right? Trying to make policy ideal, weighing costs and benefits. That's sort of not the calculus that people are operating with there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, you know, they have 
for better or worse, you know, very real interests to, to, yeah. to provide for and to please. They're locked into various arrangements, um, whether it be, you know, constitutional or um, international lending agencies who are dictating yeah. conditions. And, and, and they just have to work within that. And so us coming in with our outsider um, expertise and knowledge um, that's sort of devoid of any of that context isn't always useful, even though we know we have an idea. So we know that, you know, we want this market to be more competitive, right. but they just have sort of very strict reasons why they can't um, remove barriers to entry and so on. And so um, figuring out how you're going to have influence in a space like that just sort of really depends on you. As I said, I had a, hard, a really hard time um, finding my feet there. But I met, you know, the people, all the people that I worked with were super great to work with and really professional. And like, so working within government was a really positive experience for that, you know. Um, and now I'm on the ASP team. And I mean, I, I work with super competent and innovative people just beyond anybody's wildest expectations. Um, and so they're doing a great job and, and I would go to them and ask them, you know, how, how, how they make that work. But I think um, one of the things I learned, you mentioned it in this discussion and it's always coming up is that we, um, what we're trying, one of the things we're trying to do is to just sort of hold space for differences in opinion and thought and background. We wanna make space. That's literally what we're doing with these external fellowships because we are going to different schools and we are talking to people who are in different disciplines. Um, and just, you know, through our curriculum, through our selection of um, scholars and students, I've learned, you know, that what's important when what we're doing is again, just trying to be inclusive yeah. And so I think, you know, anybody trying to get involved in this sort of fellowship programming, as I said, you know, speak to my colleagues who are just absolutely amazing at what they do, but also just remember, there's a lot of payoff for holding space for that, um, that kind of diversity. That's really important, even in, even in our Q system and, you know, making sure students don't drown each other out and everybody gets to talk like that real the students are they come out really impressed by that they're like i thought i was just like you said i thought i was going to be lectured to i thought this whole program was going to be about x and yet you have people from you know you have me medical students you have lawyers you have women, you have men, you have people from all over the world. Like I wasn't expect they weren't expecting that at all and they weren't expecting us to just sort of really just read and let them talk and, and feel free to express themselves. So um, I feel like that's, I, I try to keep that even in my classes, you know, I just try to remember that that's fundamental to what we're doing yeah. at Mason is being good listeners and giving people the freedom to explore and think and express themselves. Well, so Ariel, you're, a, you're a great educator and uh, the programs that you've, uh, you know, uh, helped develop and uh, improve and everything, um, our alumni program, the Bastiat Fellowship, your participation, the Smith Fellowship, and all that is, is uh, immeasurably valuable. And, and I, I, um, I think that uh, in addition to your work, which is exemplar of how to pursue these kind of questions in a serious way that gives space to the voices that are on the ground mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than the voices of the experts from afar. Yeah. At the same time, you've been in a position where you could, you were seeing it from the, so you, so like we, we in my book with, with Dragos and, and Vlad, we make this distinction building on the oceans of seem like a citizen versus seem like a state. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that position of power, you're seen like a state. Yeah. But yet at the same time, your other work privileges seem like a citizen. Yeah. And the communication between these two is, is what makes you, I think, such a unique and talented educator. And we're so thrilled to be able to, to work with you. So 
speaking of, you know, entrepreneurial opportunity, it is so ripe for that because I had to spend a lot of time, you know, reading the work that existed and there's just gaps all over the place. You know, most things there haven't been, you know, just, there's just low hanging fruit all over the place. It's all over the place. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.